In March, the Waitangi Tribunal is set to hear the story of the country's most populous and poorest tribe, Northland-based Napui. They have land claims aplenty, but their primary grievance concerns the treaty itself and its precursor, Hefakaputanga, the 1835 Declaration of Independence. Our Northland correspondent, Lois Williams, compiled this report. In 1846, the great Ngāpui chief Kawiti spoke those words to his warriors after the siege of Ruapekapeka. It was a message of peace. The time for war with the British was over, he said. But it also contained a prophecy. Kawiti predicted his people would become labourers for their Pākehā friends. But he said they should hold fast to the Christian faith and not desecrate the treaty their forebears had signed. They should wait, he said cryptically, until the sandfly nipped the pages of the document, and then they should rise up and oppose. For many of Kawiti's descendants, the time to defend the spirit of Te Tiriti is now. We're looking first of all at Te Tiriti and Te Whakaputanga. I believe that this will be the first time that these two documents will come under intense scrutiny. It's never happened before. I think it's um, going to be one of the most important constitutional debates that this country will ever have. We can't turn the clock backwards, but we want the opportunity to tell our story. For Ngāpui, that story is not just about the treaty or even Te Tiriti, the document they signed. It's about a document their chiefs signed five years before, He Whakaputanga o Te Rangatiratanga o Nūtirini, the Declaration of Independence of New Zealand. It's this declaration, rather than Te Tiriti, that Ngāpui considered the founding document of New Zealand. It declared a Māori sovereign authority, which they say was not extinguished by Te Tiriti. Here, in translation, it declares the northern parts of New Zealand an independent state. All sovereign power and authority within the territories of the United Tribes of New Zealand is hereby declared to reside entirely and exclusively in the hereditary chiefs and heads of tribes in their collective capacity, who also declare they will not permit any legislative authority separate from themselves to exist, nor any function of government to be exercised unless by persons appointed by them and acting under the authority of laws regularly enacted by them in Congress assembled. This declaration was accepted and acknowledged by the British government, and five years on, when it came to drawing up the treaty, it became an obstacle to British sovereignty. British authorities instructed New Zealand officials to make sure the chiefs who'd signed the declaration signed the treaty, ceding the sovereignty established in 1835. But for the last 170 years, Ngāpuhi have quietly, and not so quietly, rejected that interpretation. I think you're going to go in there, mate. 
Vigorous protest has been a regular fixture at Waitangi and in the north in general for decades. Not just by young so-called radicals or fringe groups trying to avoid mortgagee sales by claiming sovereignty. Revered leaders like the late Sir James Henry, the former Māori Battalion commander, led a major protest in his old age, planting pōwhenua or marker posts in the ground to show Ngāti Hine's sovereignty. And Dame Fina Cooper was 80 when she led the 1975 land march from Tahapua to Parliament that launched a new era of protest and reform. Peter Tippin is a present-day Ngātihine leader. Well, I think in every generation there have been people who have championed the, uh, the betrayal and the fraudulent nature of, the, of Te Tiriti o Waitangi. You can look at what Sir James did when the marina was built over here at Opua, and you can look at his uh, videos of what he said at the time. Well, Sir James Henry um, lodged Y49, which when you look at that number, it was one of the very first ones, uh, and that was over the Taumarere River and Te Moana Pikopiko Wefiti, which is around that area, Opua, uh, because he could see then what, what was happening, and it ended up in, in full-blown protest. I mean, people occupied the site. And its challenges to the Crown by Northern leaders like the late Matiurata and Sir Graham Latimer, which have made the biggest gains for Māori in recent years. Those include the establishment of the Waitangi Tribunal, the Privy Council actions which led to the Māori Fisheries Settlement, Māori broadcasting rights and the recognition of te reo as an official language. But the sense of injustice, of betrayal that fuels those actions has been there almost from the day the treaty was signed. According to uh, Darwin's top student who revisited the bay in 1840, sailed up the uh, Waikare and Taumarere rivers two weeks after the uh, signing of uh, Te Tiriti at Waitangi, and he commented about how, how all the villages on his way up both rivers were abuzz with anti-treaty talk. Now there, there it is two weeks later, the uh, people are starting to moan about what this new tiriti uh, meant for them and it wasn't the partnership that they envisaged. Irama Henry, one of the four Ngāpui elders leading the claim, says to understand that reaction it's necessary to look at where Ngāpui were before they signed and what they were hoping for. By 1840 they'd had more than three decades of contact with Europeans and they'd been swift to grasp the opportunities of those years. The chiefs in the bay at the time were uh, trading uh, they had their own boats, they were trading offshore as well as trading with boats that arrived in the bay and in Hokianga. They're trading uh, logs, spars, uh, provisioning the boats that came here, sending food to the uh, convict colonies in Australia, pork, potatoes. This is when the potatoes started to overtake the kumara because it kept better. And, you know, people like Kawiti and Honeheke and Hongihika, other Ngāpuhi luminary of the time, Tāreha and others from 1805 onwards were frequent visitors to Marsden in Parramatta, in uh, Sydney, uh, Ruatara, Titore, uh, Te Toro. They were all uh, frequent visitors to Sydney and uh, other parts of the world, travelling on the ships that came into the Bay of Islands. So, yeah, they, they, they had begun um, both commerce and uh, globalising themselves. Uh, uh, probably the early um, Kiwi OE 
<laughs> Exponents. You know? Yeah, so they were, yes, they were big uh, traders, huge, huge traders. And of course, they could do that because they had a land base. It may well have been a Ngāpui OE experience that led to the adoption of the first New Zealand flag and a year later, he whakaputanga, the Declaration of Independence. Honi Sadler, a lecturer in Māori Studies at Auckland University and one of the claimants, explains. Around about 1833, Patuone, the elder brother of Tamati Wakanene, he was in, in Sydney on one of their trading vessels when it was arrested. And the reason it was arrested was because it didn't have a registered flag. And so this was the beginning of putting together the uh, Declaration or the Proclamation of Independence because it meant that if they were an independent nation, they were able to register their ships and that they wouldn't be arrested on the high seas as pirates. Whether the chiefs approached the British resident New Zealand James Busby with a request for a flag or whether it was his idea is unclear, but it's a matter of some irritation for Ngāpui that most historians assume initiatives like the flag of the independent tribes must have come from Busby or the missionaries and that Māori were passive accomplices. Erema Henry says it was a letter from Ngāpui chiefs to the King of England in 1831 that persuaded the British to send Busby to New Zealand in the first place. The 1831 letter, a lot of people probably will not have heard of, was a letter out of Kerikeri from the Ngāpui chiefs that gathered there to write to talk about how troublesome a lot of the new settlers, British settlers, were in the Bay of Islands and the need for the King to come and... Uh, exercise some control over his uh, citizens. I think the chiefs had uh, definitely by that time sorted out that they wanted a relationship with England, they wanted a relationship with the King of England, so they sent the lowest form of diplomatic representation to New Zealand in the form of uh, James Busby uh, to look after the uh, Pākehā people who were living in the bay and ins- to ins- for him to ensure that they lived within the law of the land if not within the law of Great Britain, the country which they came. It didn't take long for the tūpuna to discover that the role of a resident is one without teeth. So that uh, tūpuna gave uh, Busby the name uh, Hemanuao Kāreonapu, a man of war without guns because he couldn't enforce or back up his judgments. In 1835, a year after the flag was chosen, there was another gathering of chiefs on Busby's front lawn, now the treaty grounds. This time it was to debate and sign Hifukaputanga. Dr Manuka Henry, in his 2003 thesis on this period, says Busby discussed with the chiefs the concept of a protectorate in which a large nation like Britain could safeguard the rights of a fledgling state. And Busby, an ambitious Scot, was keen to see the chiefs form a confederation that would, guided by him of course, make laws and lend weight to his calls for military backup. Honey Sadler. He wanted to help out because I guess having taken up his post as the British uh, resident and he didn't have any real um, backup, eh? and thus they called him the um, man of war without guns. But With the help of Busby, they were able to achieve what they wanted. 
For Busby, the creation of an independent Māori state would put a stop to bothersome Frenchmen like the bizarre Baron de Terry with his plans for a French kingdom in Hokianga. That was an agreeable prospect for the Anglican missionaries, bristling at the competition from the French Roman Catholic Bishop Pompallier. Māori sovereignty would also put a stop to ad hoc lawmaking by Busby's rival, a second resident in Hokianga. But Ngāpui say for them it was a declaration that they'd arrived on the world stage and intended to secure their place on it. Pre-1835, we had Waikato and Hongi already visited England. See, Hongi met his demise in 1828. So, you know, from the early 1800s, they were travelling backwards and forwards to England. And so they had an idea of what the wider world was about. And they wanted to be part of that. The main reason why the Declaration came about, they weren't too worried about other people making laws because those laws weren't for them. They were only worried about their trading opportunities being um, interrupted. With the various agendas happily coinciding, the Declaration of Independence, drafted by missionary Henry Williams, was signed by 52 chiefs as far south as Waikato. It's often referred to in dismissive terms by historians as a document of no real significance. But that's not the way Ngāpui leaders see it. And the language it uses to express sovereignty is revealing. Ko te kīngitanga, ko te mana i te whenua o te hakamininga o ni tirini, ka mea tia nei, kei ngā tino rangatiratanga anake i tō mātou huihuinga, a ka mehoki e kore e tuku e mātou te hakarite ture ki tētehi hunga ke atu, me tētehi kawanatanga hoki, Ke mea te i te huenua o te hakamininga o ni tirini, ko ngā tangata anake e mea tēnei e mātou e hakaritiana ki te ritinga o mātou ture e mea tēnei e mātou i tō mātou huihuinga. The words Henry Williams used to express sovereignty in the Declaration were kingitanga, mana and tino rangatiratanga. And the word he chose to express governance was kaunatanga. Five short years later, in Te Treaty of Waitangi, the word he used for sovereignty to be ceded to the Queen was kawanatanga. Erima Henare, who's also the Māori Language Commissioner, says that's plainly wrong. Sovereignty, without a word of doubt, there are only two words in the Māori language that describe sovereignty, personal or national, and they are mana and te tinorangatiratanga. I haven't found evidence uh, uh, to support it, but... At the Williams family reunion in the late 70s, some of the family members talked about there being a diary where uh, Reverend Henry Williams had said that if he had used the word mana, the chiefs would never have parted with their mana. That was a concept that uh, the missionaries had grown used to. They knew what it meant, they knew what it was, and if he asked them to give up their mana, which is, which is really absolute authority over everything, including life and death itself, um, they would never have given that away, N- not in his wildest dreams. And that is why generations of Ngāpui have called the treaty, the English version of the contract, a fraud, and simply not what they signed up for. So what did they agree to? Peter Tippany. I think they knew exactly what they were signing when they signed the treaty. Uh, and given that the treaty and the treaty are different documents, certainly different wording, if you use the words that they signed in Māori, 
I think they were very clear that they weren't signing away uh, their authority and that they, I think that they were signing away a form of governance, um, I suppose, that, that they related to. And I think it was the governorship that they knew that, that was in the Bible, the Pontius Pilate model. Honi Sadler agrees. By the 1830s, Ngāpui were familiar with the roles of sovereigns and governors, both from their travels and from the Bible. By the time Busby arrives on the scene, there were a lot of conversions. Um, by 1840, in the Bay, there were 30,000 who had converted to Christianity. So the language that was used in the Whakaputa, they would have had an understanding. You know, my contention is that at the treaty, the signing of the treaty and the signing of the Whakaputa, they had an, a complete understanding of what they were signing. They weren't, as um, Hobson asked, are these simple-minded people. They were sophisticated in that they had already had a peek through the window of the world. and They knew what was happening. They had an understanding of what kawanatanga was. They understood what kingitanga was. They had 20 years' experience with knowing the Bible. And the language explained in there, they knew the difference of the role that Pontius Pilate had as governor over the area that he had authority and knew that the uh, authority rested with Rome. Kingitanga, they had um, already visited England and they knew what a king was. The Ngāpui leaders say their tūpuna, or ancestors, signed the treaty believing they were being asked, as the sovereign authority, to consent to a civil administration that would impose the rule of law on settlers. Some may have believed that the governance would extend to Māori. Certainly a number of chiefs at the signing protested bitterly at the idea of the governor being placed above them. But the second article, after all, guaranteed their tēnaranga tēnatanga. And Hobson's speech on that hot summer morning at Waitangi could only have reinforced the idea that the Queen wanted their consent to control wayward Pākehā. Her Majesty, Victoria, Queen of Great Britain and Ireland, wishing to do good to the chiefs and people of New Zealand and for the welfare of her subjects living among you, has sent me to this place as Governor. But as the law of England gives no civil powers to Her Majesty out of her dominions, her efforts to do you good will be futile unless you consent. The people of Great Britain are, thank God, free, and as long as they do not transgress the laws, they can go where they please, and their sovereign has not power to restrain them. You have sold them lands here and encouraged them to come here. Her Majesty, always ready to protect her subjects, is also always ready to restrain them. Her Majesty the Queen asks you to sign this treaty and to give her that power which shall enable her to restrain them. What I wish you to do is expressly for your own good, as you will soon see by the treaty. You yourselves have often asked the King of England to extend his protection to you. Her Majesty now offers you that protection in this treaty. At the time of the Queen's offer, Māori might well have scoffed at the idea of protection. At that stage, they numbered at least 100,000 against just 2,000 Europeans. That changed dramatically by the turn of the century when Europeans numbered 160,000 and Māori just 40,000. But within five years of the treaty, Hōneheke, the first to sign up, 
was objecting to treaty breaches by chopping down the flagstaff at Russell, beginning the Northern War. There were victories. Hickey and Kawiti outwitted the British troops in battle several times, inventing trench warfare in the process. Sir Graham Latimer, now over 80, says it was the beginning of 170 years of Ngāpui insistence that they had a covenant with the Crown, Te Tiriti, and it deserved to be honoured. Year in and year out, it keeps it popping up, uh, showing itself, to the extent where all those people from Ngāpui, they have to go on to satisfy their own inner feelings about the thing. There's always another character is there all the time, in our mind, making it absolutely certain that we don't lose anything off the truck at the end of the road. This uh, attitude of saying, oh, well, bugger it, we can't say that, because it'll stay there to haunt all our children, Parker and Murray, and we should do what we can now to so that we can not get rid of it, but give it a, a better image for our young people and for our old people to follow. go to some of the Urupa around Northland, um, there's headstones which refer to uh, the people, the person who's deceased being a person who's um, held fast to the, the, the treaty and what it represents. You know, it's, it's very much been a live issue. In the peaceful little churchyard opposite Graham Latimer's place, there lie eight people who signed to Treaty Waitangi and that point is made very clearly on some of their headstones. They note the fact that these people were signatories. Here's one, Henare Popata Waha Pairata, and it says he was one of the first of the local rangatira to sign, Kuia Tetahi unga rangatira ituhiana tana tohu kirunga te tiriti o waitangi, and he signed on the 28th of April, 1840. His family have put up a new marble headstone to commemorate that fact. Moana Tufari is a Kaikohi-based lawyer who represents some of the larger Ngāpui hapu groupings with claims before the Waitangi Tribunal. There are a staggering 800-plus claims in the Northern Inquiry to Paparaki or Taraki. But she says there's been general agreement to work together and make the best possible case for the two main claims, Hifakaputanga and Tutiriti. Ms Tufare says the focus on those two founding documents sets the Ngāpui claim apart from all others and reflects the eerie sense of responsibility for Te Tiriti and its consequences. They've been dealt with in other inquiries. They've been dealt with um, amongst you know, a raft of, of other issues such as you know, native land court, public works takings, um, Māori land development, education, health, you know, all those sorts of things that are, are your standard issues that, that are traversed by um, most tribunals. This will be quite distinct in that these two issues have never been separated and had the sorts of evidence and hearing time dedicated to them that this inquiry will. So, I mean, for that reason, it is very, very different. And what outcome can Ngāpui expect if the tribunal does uphold the claims and finds they didn't, in fact, cede sovereignty? Ngāpui Komatua, Dr Bruce Gregory. The first question we need to ask is that we need to come to some finality with regard to these two documents. I think we have to start from that basis. You know, there has to be an acknowledgement of Māori sovereignty, or Rangatiratanga, 
And I think once that has been uh, accept, uh, accepted and acknowledged, then that's the difficulty, because uh, we're in the process of doing that now uh, to determine which way it is. Uh, then you have to think of where uh, Aotearoa New Zealand lies at this point of time. What are you going to dismantle? What are you going to improve? Uh, how are you going to um, bring those two elements together of Māori and non-Māori? Um, what is an acceptable blueprint, I suppose, maybe? But I don't think that can happen until the mistakes of the past with respect to these two documents are actually um, being agreed to. The Ngāpui Runanga leader, Sonny Toe, says essentially it's a matter of honour for Ngāpui to have their vision of nationhood vindicated. And if it takes two generations to adjust the country's constitutional arrangements accordingly, that's fine by him. I think by that time, there'd be a lot more coffee-coloured people anyway, you know. By 2025, uh, half of the population is going to be island and Māori. So by 2025, the Pākehā contingent of the population is going to be a minority. So population-wise and uh, yeah, population-wise it take care of it itself. I believe that the vision of our tūpuna will one day eventually uh, surpass what they thought at the time. I think it will surpass their, their dreams and their aspirations as they signed the Tariti of Waitanga and that will be done by sheer weight of numbers. The Waitangi Tribunal is planning to hear the claims involving Hefakaputanga and Tetriti at Waitangi over several weeks next March. That programme was written and presented by Lois Williams. It was produced by Sue Ingram and was first broadcast in November 2009.